Welcome to the Everything Early Childhood podcast designed for approved providers, nominated supervisors and other childcare leaders. This fun, lighthearted and very serious podcast features weekly episodes on strategy, advice and conversations with fascinating and inspiring people from across our sector. Join the journey and have access to the tools and inspiration you need to create high-performing childcare businesses. Let's get started. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Everything Early Childhood. I am your host, Lisa Brown, founder of Platinum Education Group, and I am here for a solo episode today. Have you missed me? It's been a little while since we've done a solo or since I've done a solo episode. Um, So I thought I would come to you. This has been really prominent on my mind. So um, every week we go and visit different amazing services around Australia. And one of our most popular services is our full day audit support visit. So we go out, we observe practice, we ask questions, we audit all of their paperwork and their systems, processes, and then we make recommendations and provide different resources. Now, on these visits, we have many, many different conversations and discussions with you amazing humans out there at each of your services. And nine times out of 10, so one of the biggest, one of the questions that we ask most regularly is, what's your biggest challenge right now? So what are you finding the most challenging? Um, What's your sticking point? Um, And where's that friction? And nine times out of 10, we get the same answer. And that is challenging behavior. So we know, we know children are people. We're all human. We all have different things that we're doing, different things that we're working at. But what really helped me early on in my career was understanding two theorists and I thought that we'd do an episode today really breaking down those two theorists because there was a switch for me very early on in my career. I remember getting really frustrated. I was like, why are they doing this? And the first centre that I ever worked at that I started as a trainee, I remember it was in the toddler room. It was crazy. It had like 30 toddlers, two to threes. And um, the one side, and I have this vivid memory of the stack of the, you know, the beds, the stack of beds. And above the stack of beds, was like this shelf and on the shelf was like the Germex disinfectant spray and I remember vividly they used to climb the beds they would get the spray spray the spray everywhere and it was really just about and I was like why are these children out of control why are they crazy why are they in you know and I I remember I was like if I think if I had of completed I was really lucky six months into my traineeship that we moved house and I moved to a um, a different service and I'm so thankful and grateful that I was able to um, be around and see and have different mentors and people that I was able to spend the time with to be able to see and for them to be able to role model that because this is all that I saw. So I thought at the time that this was normal. This is what all children are like. Um, what's happening here? And had I stayed there, I'm just not sure that I would have still been in early childhood, which is crazy. So moving to the other center did change my life and change my career progression. And I talk about it a lot. I had one of my best and favorite mentors at that center who was the director 
And she just got me. She just understood me. She understood I needed extra projects. She gave me lots of stimulating things. And it was one of those experiences where you, I was led by someone that knew me better than I knew myself, which was really, really beautiful. And that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? I think with children as well, it's really just about understanding them. But when I was back in those good old days um, and getting frustrated, pulling my hair out, thinking, gosh, is it really like this? Can I really show up every day and be this stressed? Um, Why are they not sitting down? Why are they not listening? Why are they doing this? And so, but instead of getting frustrated, there was a point in my career where I, and I don't even know where, perhaps it was in my studies or going through, you know, there's certain moments in time that you're like, yes, that really changed my practice and changed my perspective on my practice, but I just don't know exactly where I was or what I was doing. But I wanted to share that with you because it gave, it allowed me to have that perspective because everything is all about perspective and I believe that life is all about your mindset and um, your space where your mind is at. So the moment for me was when I thought they're doing this because of me. They're doing this to test me. They're doing this just to, um, you know, drive me insane. And and, And at first I was getting frustrated because I thought they were doing it on purpose and I had this belief that it was just me, they were only doing it for me and that the children were doing it on purpose to test me. They knew I was new um, and they were just doing it to push my buttons and I think also whether you're an educator, whether you're a parent, you might have those similar feelings and those similar feelings. thoughts or ideas or perspectives and the moment that changed that for me was when I was introduced to um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs but also at the same time we introduced to Glass's human needs theory. So I wanted to break those two theories down for you because what it helped me to see is that children they're four, they're two, they're three. They don't know. And it's not our job to stop children from having emotions. It's our job to help children understand and be able to articulate those emotions. They don't have the vocabulary. They don't have the words. They don't even understand what's happening in their little bodies. And when they're having these behaviors, all they're doing is those red warning signs. Like I remember in the training very early on, she said a toddler screaming, having a tantrum in the in the corner. All they see in their head is red. You cannot go over and interfere or intervene. It's okay for them to feel those feelings and have those emotions. And we now call that emotional intelligence. And there are really beautiful and amazing people out there who are spreading the word loud and clear. Um, You know, if you don't follow Stephanie Pinto, she did an earlier episode with us. Go back and listen to her episode. Um, Really, really beautiful and an advocate for emotional intelligence. And her theory is that we need to have emotional intelligent adults first before we can have emotionally intelligent children. So she's doing a lot of beautiful work with services and um, adults out there as well. But it really is that when they are having those challenging behaviors, it's those alarm bells going off they need something. They don't know what they need often. 
So they, it comes out with big emotions and crying. And, um, you know, we share, and in Steph's book, she shares about the iceberg and how all we're seeing is that tip of that iceberg, which is the reaction to something that's happened. And it might not even be something that just immediately happened. We don't know what happened in the morning before they were dropped off. We don't know, you know, if they were supposed to spend the day with their mum, but their mum had a change of plan. So they dropped them to school. We don't know. So, and neither do the children. The children don't know either with where these big emotions are coming from. So really it's about us as the adult to step into the space and really to assess what is it that they need. So I really wanted to break down these two theorists today. And when I started to change my perspective and my line of questioning, well, they'd be like, why is this child crying? Why does this child cry all the time? It's because they need something and we weren't addressing the child's needs. So instead of saying, why were they? How can I help? How can I support them? What is it that they need? What happened before this? So, and just start taking notes so that you can respond to the child's needs rather than um, actually just reacting in the moment. Um, It's really important that we check in with ourselves before we go into any of those situations as well, because sometimes we're not in a good place as adults. And there's a beautiful saying which says that children need our calm, not our chaos. So before you step into any of those moments to support a child's emotions, you need to check in with yourself to make sure that you are okay to do so. If not, just say to your teammate, which is so beautiful about early childhood, we have so many amazing people around us. So say to your teammate, hey, I'm just not okay. I'm at a 20 today. If you're at an 80 today, would you mind stepping in and helping and supporting this child? So let's get started with breaking them down. And have those conversations with your team um, prior as well so that they understand and know those expectations. So Maslow. So if you think about Maslow, um, his hierarchy of needs is what we call it. And it's in a pyramid style. So you need to imagine a triangle. And Maslow's hierarchy of needs can be interpreted as an educational philosophy that emphasizes the importance of addressing all of your children's fundamental needs in order to facilitate optimal learning and growth. It was developed by psychologist Abraham Maslow in the mid 20th century. And the hierarchy is a theory of human motivation arranged in a pyramid with five levels where each level represents a different category of needs that individuals must fulfill. In the context of education, this philosophy can be applied in the following ways. So the base level of the pyramid is physiological needs. So this is the foundation of Maslow's hierarchy and it it includes basic physiological needs such as food, water, shelter and sleep. So in our settings, it's crucial to ensure that students' physical needs are met so they can focus on the environment, building relationships and learning. And this might involve providing nutritious meals, safe and comfortable learning environments and sufficient breaks for rest. And I also think lots of uninterrupted time for play as well comes into these two bottom levels. Um, The second stage is safety. So safety needs. So once their physiological needs are fulfilled, each child requires a sense of safety and security. So in an educational context, this can be achieved through implementing um, the practices and um, policies consistently to create a positive and supportive learning environment. 
So it might be fostering relationships, addressing any form of um, violence or threat that the child might perceive to help them and ask them what makes you feel safe and what makes you feel unsafe at school or at home and ensuring a sense of emotional and physical safety. So you can involve the children in really understanding these as well. So then they can articulate to you this, I'm just not feeling safe right now. What does that look like? How does your body respond when you're not feeling safe? And who can they go to? So there's some really beautiful exercises. It's like your five safety people and you have a hand up and um, you identify five safe people in their lives for each child with who they can go to and talk about when they're not feeling safe. And this also really closely aligns with the UN Convention on Rights of a Child because all children have the right to feel safe. Um, And so go through that with your team as well. The third stage of our pyramid is love and belonging needs. So this focuses on social needs, such as a need for friendship, belonging and acceptance. So this means promoting a sense of community and encouraging positive peer relationships, group activities, teamwork and extracurricular clubs. So students can connect with each other and develop a sense of belonging within the environment and the community. Number four is the esteem needs, which is the fourth level, and it is both self-esteem, so inner recognition, and external esteem, which is recognition from others. So as educators, it's essential to support students' self-confidence and knowledge and acknowledge their achievements. So encouragement, constructive feedback, recognising their strengths and talents can contribute to fulfilling their self-esteem needs and encouraging them to strive for success. So in this area, which um, we're talking a lot about in services at the moment with EYLF 2.0, Um, coming out, it talked a lot about the children being involved in documenting their own learning. So I think that has to do with their self-esteem and perhaps their internal self-esteem and self-confidence because when they identify a goal that they want to meet and then we put steps into place and they identify those steps with how to get there, it teaches them the lifelong skills to have that growth mindset that we need to set that goal initially, work really hard and practice and break it down into smaller steps and then of course celebrate that they have achieved that. So it's really important. I think that's a really important thing to consider, especially for your three to five-year-old classrooms with how you can involve the children in their own learning. And that will build up the internal self-esteem and self-confidence and teach those life skills for them. Now, the top of the pyramid, the top of Maslow's pyramid is called self-actualization. Now, at the peak of the hierarchy, that's a realisation <clears throat> of one's full potential and personal growth. As a, as a philosophy, this means promoting individualised learning opportunities, encouraging creativity and helping students discover their passions and interests. So by allowing the children to pursue their unique paths of learning, educators can foster a sense of purpose and fulfilment. The interesting thing about Maslow's hierarchy of needs is that he believes that you need to progress one at a time and you travel up the pyramid, that hierarchy. So it's one, two, three, four, five. The other interesting thing that Maslow says is that 
not everyone will achieve self-actualization. So self-actualization is where we internally look at ourselves and develop a sense of growth mindset where we can and we always fulfilling our potential and personal growth. So it's really, really interesting that not everyone will get to that. So, and it's usually, and we're all human, right? So, and it's not just talking about children, it's talking about humans in general. So maybe even consider and ask yourself, which stage do you think you're at? Um, are you, have you got your base of your pyramid? And you can move up and down as different things happen in your life. So you might find that things are quite chaotic and out of control when your safety needs are not being met. So all you're looking for then is just security and comfort to say, do I have food, water, shelter and sleep? Because your safety needs, there's something putting those at risk in your life. So same for children. If there's something going on at home that's impacting their safety needs, they will not be able to form those secure connections and relationships. They will only be looking back towards their food, water, shelter and sleep and making sure that they are safe. So in summary, Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, involves recognising that students' motivation to learn and thrive is influenced by their hierarchical needs. So if we address these needs and create a supportive, inclusive and stimulating learning environment, we can facilitate students' overall development and help them reach their full potential. So this approach recognises that learning is not just an intellectual process, but also deeply connected to emotional, social and physical well-being and the students need to have their needs met and move up that pyramid of their um, basic needs in order to learn grow and build social relationships so the question is what need where is that child at in the pyramid which level of they at and what do they need right now and interestingly with children they can move through the pyramid so quickly if they don't deem and they don't know so I think that's the other thing to consider and be quite empathetic and patient about the children don't know they don't know that they're moving through these levels and they're assessing safety based on their level of knowledge so they don't understand why they're feeling these emotions but it's up to us to have lots and lots of different education around what that looks like and what that feels like for each child so they can identify those feelings and those emotions and those signals that their body is letting them know as well. So the second one I wanted to work work through was Glasser. So I like to look at these in context with each other because Glasser theory is very, very similar. Although the difference between Glasser and Maslow is that Maslow believed everyone moved up the pyramid from the base all the way up to self-actualization, whereas Glasser believed that every human had five basic needs that were central to understanding human behavior and motivation. So these needs serve as a foundation of his psychological and counselling approach and are the key to his ideas about personal responsibility and decision making. So the five basic human needs as identified by Glasser, are the first one is survival. So this need encompasses the psychological requirements for survival such as air, water, food, shelter and overall physical well-being 
without meeting this fundamental need, individuals cannot focus on high level needs. So first, survival. The second one is love and belonging. So the need refers to the desire for social connections, acceptance and meaningful relationships with others. It includes feelings of love, friendship and a sense of belonging to a community or group. Number three is power. So the need for power relates to the desire to feel competent, capable and in control of one's life and environment. It is not about dominance over others, but rather a sense of personal efficacy and influence. So feeling that sense of satisfaction. Number four is freedom. So this need is the desire for autonomy and independence, the ability to make choices and have control over one's life within reasonable limits. And number five is fun. So the need for fun encompasses the enjoyment of life, pleasure and engaging in lots of different activities that bring joy and fulfillment. So each of these might look different for every single person with what they look like, but he believes that these are the five basic human needs. And rather than them being a hierarchical structure that you need to have one and then the other, he believed that all humans at the needed need all five things at the same time. So Glasser believed that all human behavior is driven by the pursuit of fulfilling these basic needs. He believed that individuals made choices and behave in ways that they believe will best meet their needs at any given moment. This includes the choices they make in their lives, relationships, and of course, educational pursuits. So in the context of education, Glass's theory suggests that all of our children are motivated to learn and engage in activities that is influenced by their needs. So when educators understand and address these needs, they can create a more effective and supportive learning environment. So for example, if we look at survival, so the first one, survival, we can make sure that we are looking after this physiological needs. So similar to Maslow, we're making sure that they have access to nutritious meals and opportunities for physical activity. When we look at love and belonging, we're building positive relationships with all of our children. We're fostering a sense of community within our within our indoor and outdoor environments and we're promoting collaboration amongst peers and can fulfill this need. Number three is power. So educators can empower students by offering choices in their learning, encouraging autonomy and recognizing their achievements and progress. So allowing the children to have choices and make meaning for their world. And this is throughout the whole of the EYLF document. And it's really, really crucial that we do involve children every step of the way with making those decisions and having control and power over how they spend their time. Number four is freedom. So providing students with a degree of autonomy in their learning process and allowing them to explore their interests within the curriculum can fulfill this need. So do we really know all of the children that we are educating? What are their interests? Where are things coming from? And do children have access to indoor and outdoor environments? And how often are you going beyond the gate? So how often are you going out on excursions to really explore the um, world around them? 
And I know that it's a little scary at first, but as you go on more and more, you'll see that the children's confidence. Um, and I know, so Nikki Bukan talks about this a lot. She's an advocate for um, outdoor play spaces and outdoor and a natural environment and nature kindy. And um, I was really lucky enough to spend a whole month with her last year. And we explored um, Iceland, Italy, UK and Scotland. And we spent a whole month in outdoor environments. And it was really incredible that, um, especially in Italy, we noticed that even the children with additional needs. um, So there were a couple of children that were diagnosed with autism, even though, yeah, with autism, but you wouldn't even have noticed in those environments because those children had the freedom not only to explore the space around them and with all of the textures and materials and um, all of the beautiful freedom that they had, but also the freedom to be themselves. It didn't matter. It wasn't impacting on anyone else. But when we inform control so if we go back a little bit to number three power when we inform our control as an adult over either the experiences the children are doing or the environment that the children are in we are saying we are in charge here you cannot be yourself and you need to conform to my rules and what is happening in this space Rather, we're supposed to be a facilitator of the children's learning. We know that children learn best through things that they're interested in. So let's give them the freedom and let's ask them questions to help facilitate and guide their learning. And often when we do this and when we involve children in this um, space, then we you will see that that sense of freedom and power are being fulfilled. So you'll see less and less resistance against that. And then number five is, is, of course, fun. So how can you enjoy engaging activities in your spaces? Can you make education more enjoyable and more meaningful for students? So really ask them, what do they like to do for fun? So, you know, dress up days and special occasions. How do you celebrate birthdays? Um, and I visited a service. When was it? A couple of weeks ago. Beautiful rural rural service and one of the educators she just has my heart there and um, she was teaching the children really old-fashioned dance moves like the trolley and the sprinkler and everything that she did was fun and everywhere she went the children just followed her in groups because she was fun and I remember the um the leaders at that service were describing that she this this educator could sit there and paint faces, but because of the amazing fun conversations and what they were doing while she was painting faces, every single child was happy to be around her and wait for their turn because they just wanted to be a part of whatever she was doing. And I have a rule, I say like if we're bored, the children are bored. So it's really up to us to be in control of having more fun and bringing that joy and inner child back into the environment. And I think really question and ask yourself if you're finding that, you know, why are the children not listening? Why are the children not sitting? Why are the children not? Um, it was pretty much those are the two biggest things that we find listening Um, is a big one. So why are they not listening to me? Um, And then the second one is usually like they just don't sit still. Children are not meant to sit still. They're not at this age between zero to five, zero to six, their bodies are not developed enough to be able to sit for long periods of time. Rule of thumb, which we've always sort of gone off is that they can only sit 
for the minutes of their age. So if they're four, that's four minutes. So really ask yourselves if you're requiring the children to sit for long periods, what are you doing? Like what are they actually doing and what do you require for the children during those times that they are sitting? Do the children have that sense of control or power? Do the children have that freedom during those times? Is there any other way that you can do it? And if you can do it through more physical activity, maybe outdoors and not indoors, like really think about being flexible because if the only motivation is for the children to learn something that you're teaching or explore and discover, think about how you can do it more physical or think about how you can involve the children in more hands-on activities. You know, we've got that other theory, um, which is your, what is it? Um, oh, I've just had a mental mind blank happen sometimes um, around the learning needs. And, you know, we know that every single child learns differently. And if we look at those and incorporate all of those learning styles um, into our environment and into what we're doing, then we're catering for every single child because every single child and every single human are so different. So if we acknowledge and address the basic human needs, educators can create a more child-centered and motivational learning environment where everyone feels valued, engaged and empowered to take ownership of their learning journey. So we really we want to understand Maslow's and Glass's theories can provide valuable insights into children's behavior because it's in their needs and their needs being fulfilled. So by applying these, we can create a more supportive and conducive learning environment. So Maslow's hierarchy We've got physiological needs, so we want to ensure that these needs are being met. So if children are hungry or uncomfortable, children may struggle to focus and participate. If the safety needs are not met, we will obviously the children will not feel safe and that sense of security. So we're not getting their physical or emotional, they're not feeling safe. Belonging and love needs. So that we can do this by encouraging teamwork, group activities and opportunities for our children to connect with one another. Esteem needs. So boosting their self-esteem, encouraging growth mindsets and emphasizing that um, mistakes are part of learning process. So really encourage and we do lots of different things around, um, you know, how can we celebrate failure? How can we celebrate mistakes? What did you fail at today? And how can we do better tomorrow? And reflection and critical reflection is such important parts of our practice as educators. But how can we involve children in those practices as well to build those growth mindsets and practice. Mistakes are fine. We're human. That's what happens. We need to make mistakes in order to practice and get better. What can we do differently tomorrow? And then self-actualization. So we want to offer challenging tasks that allow the children to develop their potential. So this is exploring their interests, passions, and talents. And then for glasses, um, the way we can do that is the one survival. So again, very, very similar to Maslow is we want to make sure that their basic needs are being met. So these directly impact their ability to focus love and belonging, foster positive relationships between students and teachers, um, power, so that's also competence. So this is challenging to promote a sense of competence and mastery, so allow students to have some control over their learning choices. And freedom, so we want to give them freedom. We talked a lot about this, so um, methods that we use, topics we discover, any group projects or group inquiries, and the environment, so switching up the environments that we're in and fun 
So incorporate games, hands-on projects, interactive lessons, make the learning experience enjoyable. So when we look at children's behavior and understanding children's behavior, there's five steps that we can do to understand. The first step is one, identifying the unmet need. So by understanding these two theories, we can have a better, we can better identify the underlying needs that might be driving certain behaviors. So for example, if we have a disruptive child, they may be seeking attention. Often we call this attention seeking, but all they're really needing is love and belonging or struggling with self-esteem issues. So how can we help them to build their confidence? The second step is preventing the issue. So we need to address needs proactively um, to help prevent any issues occurring. So when children feel safe, valued and engaged in the environment, they are less likely to act out or have their needs because the needs are already considered in the environment as a proactive approach. So you can actually look at these needs before they even are an issue and say, and brainstorm with your teams at a team meeting to say, how can we incorporate these? How can we make our environment safer? How can we make sure that we children's physiological needs are being met? Can we have a fruit bowl out for periods of the day so children could go and help themselves to food when they're hungry. Um, step number three is an individualized approach. So we need to recognize that each child has unique needs and motivations. We need to tailor our teaching strategies and support to address these individual differences. This is really important to understand and that every child is going to be different. As adults, we also have different personalities. So every child might respond to each child differently and the child might respond to each adult or educator differently also. I remember that this saying and it was like the difference between a response and a reaction is literally I think it was like five or 90 seconds. So if something's happening in your environment with a child and you find that it's a trigger for you, like you need to work through your, we need to work through our own biases and what triggers us because likely it's something from our childhood um, that is triggering us. However, when you do have something that like you, you just, it, it, you know, the, you feel the blood pressure go to your head. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they just did that. Breathe. That's all you can do. Take five deep breaths, three deep breaths, two deep breaths, breathe and slow your breathing down and then respond. If we, whatever we say immediately when that happens is a reaction and we're reacting to that. But remember that children need our calm, not our chaos. We need to also, we need to almost like step outside of ourselves and who we are in order to respond to that in a calm, supportive way. So that is the split. That's the difference. 90 seconds. So make sure that you take that breath um, and that pause before you respond. Really important. And then number five is promoting intrinsic motivation. So we want to understand how to tap into that intrinsic motivation and help create a love for learning. That's all our goal is. We want children to love learning. We want them to be inquisitive, ask questions, show that sense of curiosity and engagement. And when students find joy and fulfillment in their experiences, they are more likely to be engaged and active participants in their classroom. 
So by integrating the insights from both Maslow and Glass's theories into your teaching practices, you can create a more nurturing and effective learning environment that supports children's behavior, growth and fulfillment in your spaces. So that's it, guys. That's my little Muslow versus um, glasses, little theory. And I really wanted to do this episode today to really support all of you educators out there and perhaps introduce you to these theories so that you can do a little bit of work um, around this with your teams, even with your children. Involve your children in these processes. Um, And there's lots of amazing professionals in our sector that are doing such beautiful work um, with this research and with these philosophies. So yeah, look them up, get the support for your team. But remember, we are not, I I think I'm going to like put a disclaimer actually, like we're not OTs, we're not speech therapists, we're not um, psychologists, we're not pediatricians. So really like early intervention is so important. Whilst this can help We do understand and I understand that there are some children that do need that additional support. But I also want to remind you at the end of the day, these children are also human. It doesn't mean that we treat them any differently. These methods will also help and support them as well. Make sure that you've got some individual support plans in place. Make sure you're documenting what works for them and make sure that we're working with families, building these beautiful, solid relationships so that families can go out and we can support them to get the help and support that they need for their child to help set them up for success, not only moving and transitioning to school, but in life. So, Um, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Um, I love talking about this stuff and can talk about this stuff all day long. Um, I might do a, that's what it is, Howard Gardner's Multiple Intelligences. Sorry, guys. There you go. It finally came at the end of the episode. Um, We might do an episode on that because that was always one of my favorite theories um, going through my studies. And um, yeah, I'd love to delve deeper into that and talk about how we can incorporate that into our spaces. Um, But I'm also going to do a future episode on um, having challenging conversations. So there's two frameworks that we can use for this because we're always in life professionally, we're always needing to have those challenging conversations. And I want to break it down for you to make it really easy um, and give you some frameworks so that you can implement them. Um, into your own practice. But thank you so much for listening today. Um, Hopefully, we have more amazing episodes coming up with some amazing guests. If you haven't already, um, one of my favorite episodes um, with Declan last week, all around happiness. Um, So make sure you go back and listen to that. Based on today's episode, make sure you go back and listen to um, Stephanie Pinto's episode um, around emotional intelligence. It'll definitely help you in your practice. And she's amazing so um, yeah go back and listen to her episode but if you have as always any ideas for any future episodes we have added a on our website www.platinumed.com.au at the top of our page you'll see ask us anything so we'd love for you to lodge any questions in there for future episodes that you'd like us to discover but thanks again so much for listening and keep making every moment count Thanks for listening to the Everything Early Childhood podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. 
we read them all. <laughs> to catch all the latest from me, your host, Lisa Brown, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Lisa Brown underscore Platinum Ed. Thanks again for listening. Keep making every moment count and I'll see you next time.